Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to stand as we read a, a couple of verses that sandwich this genealogy. You might call this message a prequel because we started with Matthew chapter 3 and, and kind of got into the story of royalty and who Jesus is. And we've learned a lot about Christ in our study of Matthew's gospel. But as we continue in this theme of royalty over this, uh, the, the, really these next few weeks, we're going to go back to the prequel. We're going to go back and look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that we kind of skipped over in the beginning and look at what royalty came from. Look at what was established in the royal lineage of Christ from the very beginning, from the very foundation of the world itself. And so let's look at the first verse and the 17th verse of this chapter, and then I'll make comments on this genealogy that you find in between. So it says, the book of the genealogy, or of the beginnings, or the generations, depending on what translation you have, of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. It's interesting, those two names are used right up front. And then verse 17, so all the generations, after he names all of these begat, 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 all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Father, teach us what you desire us to know about this beautiful story of how Christ came into this world. Lord, your word says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and profitable. Lord, I pray that there would be great spiritual profit for us in understanding just a little bit about this genealogy of our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Family history, family trees, genealogy can be very interesting. On Thanksgiving Day, I was at my grandmother's house, and she pulled out a DVD, and we began to watch this slideshow of the Brown Family Reunions. I know some of you are thinking... Very interesting. <laughs> Brown family reunions. But you know what? At first, I didn't think I would be too interested, and then I got very engaged in this because I enjoyed laughing at what my dad and, and, and my uncles and everybody used to look like and, and uh, having fun with all the hairstyles and how they changed throughout the years. Uh, I enjoyed uh, seeing my, my grandfather's young face and all of his siblings, and I was just... I was looking for myself along the way, and then, then along comes Robbie in the 1970s and 1980s, and, uh, and I had, had a good time laughing, and, and I know Kent and Karis had a good time laughing at me, but what made the family history interesting was seeing myself in the story. And I think about times uh, following Tina's family history a little bit, going up to Valdez, North Carolina years ago, where 
the Waldensians, which is her heritage, came from northern Italy, the, the Italian-French Alps region, and, and came to settle in western North Carolina because of great persecution that they had experienced in northern Italy. And I remember making our way up there to the Waldensian Church and the Waldensian Museum and seeing her pictures with her great-grandparents and ancestors. And, and what might have at one time seemed boring became very interesting because I could see her in the story. I could see generations in the story. And there at the museum, not only did we go back to those generations that came from northern Italy and her great-grandparents and folks like that, but we saw uh, the, the Waldenses as they were traced all the way back uh, to before the Reformation, really all the way back to the 12th century A.D. And that becomes quite interesting because you think, wow, that's in her bloodline. That's in my kids' bloodline. And when you see yourself in the story, as a matter of fact, they even reminded me the Waldenshin church there, uh, one day Kent would be allowed to be the pastor, but I would never be allowed to be the pastor because I did not have the Waldenshin blood. And so little facts like that, trivia, becomes very interesting when we see ourselves in the story. What makes the genealogy of Jesus Christ interesting? Certainly it's that Jesus Himself is the one true Messiah that changed the world. But this morning, I pray that you will be able to see yourself in the story. Family history is interesting if it's your family. Family history is interesting. Heritage is interesting if it's my family. And more so if there is a discovery along the way that might speak of some kind of an inheritance. Something special coming your way. It was Genealogies were especially interesting to the Jews because they wanted to know that they were somehow connected to the messianic hope they looked for that hope of the world that we were singing about like they looked forward to that day that messiah would come and make all things right so the family tree is not only important because of discovering royal lineage that has to do with christ but but royal lineage that impacted all of israel and today for christians the royal lineage that you and I can become a part of. Romans chapter 11, verse 17 says that Gentile believers are through faith grafted into that vine. A family tree that we might, thought, might have thought we had nothing to do with. We're grafted into the vine. We're, we're part of that family tree because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we, we look at family trees for interesting discoveries that help us understand ourselves where we came from, and possibly where we're going. That's what makes this family tree, this genealogy, very interesting. So I just want to make two statements about two interesting discoveries from the royal lineage of Christ this morning. The first discovery we make as we look at this royal lineage is the faithfulness of God to all generations. The faithfulness of God to all generations. You know, the Old Testament is also a story of redemption like the New Testament. 
it was a, a story of God's redeeming love up until the point that He would send Messiah. And they were looking forward to this promised Messiah, the promised anointed one who would come to make all things right, even though they didn't always understand all that that meant. Certainly they missed a lot of the suffering servant passages that spoke of Messiah becoming sin for us, dying on the cross for our sins. But they thought there was possibly royalty in their future, so they wanted to know that they were connected to the royal lineage of Messiah. And Matthew begins here tracing the lineage through Joseph back to David and to Abraham. Or to state it from verse 17, going forward from Abraham, it says, to David, those 14 generations. Then from David to the captivity in Babylon, 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ, 14 more generations. So in the midst of all these begats, and sometimes these family histories were done with a certain method In other words, you might go from a parent to a grandchild and even skip a generation, but there was a purpose for the way the genealogy was laid out. In this particular genealogy, you can kind of picture a letter in. It goes up for 14 generations. The promise of Abraham and kind of peaks at the promises to King David and the Davidic line. And then it seems to come down all the way to the Babylonian captivity, one of Israel's lowest points, and then it's back up again until the highest point, the birth of Messiah. And so there's something poetic about this genealogy and these three fourteens here, these 14 generations. We knew and we know that Messiah had to be a Jew from Abraham. As a matter of fact, before the promises could even be made, we find that the royal line must stay among, as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 17.15, stay among your fellow Israelites. Centuries before Israel would even demand a king, before they would want some kind of royalty, they were told that the royal one, Royalty had to remain among the fellow Israelites. So we knew that Jesus would be a Jew, or Messiah would be a Jew. There was a promise to Abraham. And when he says here at the beginning, the son of Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham, he goes back to, you remember the songs, Father Abraham had many sons. He goes back to that covenant you find in Genesis chapter 12. You can turn with me, or I believe it will be on the overhead. But in Genesis chapter 12, we see God establishing a people and establishing a covenant with Abraham. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to stand or to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I believe that God still says today, those people who bless Israel, I'm going to bless. Those people who curse Israel, I'm going to curse. 
Then he says this, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's going to come the messianic hope through the lineage of Abraham that will be the Messiah for all of the world. Jews especially followed David's descendants because they knew the connection from Abraham all the way to David. But they wanted to know that they were one of David's descendants because we're told in 2 Samuel 7 verse 13 that the Messiah is going to come through the royal line of David. We might also examine the language here in verse 1 where it says the book of the genealogy or the Genesis or the generations. It's a lot like Genesis chapter 5 and other passages that intentionally want to point to how God started something very sovereignly, very divinely. While it's different from Luke's narrative, and some people will even say, oh, see, there are mistakes in the Bible. Luke's genealogy doesn't match up with Matthew's genealogy perfectly. Well, again, I mentioned there were purposes for including some names or possibly excluding other names. But keep in mind that Luke was fascinated with the virgin birth, but he traced, it seems like, Mary's lineage all the way back to David. And of course, coming from the same tribe eventually as Joseph would have come from, there would have been some parallels. But he, Luke seems to be interested for a while in Mary's ancestry. And, and also being interested in the virgin birth, Luke will trace his genealogy all the way back to Adam. All the way past Abraham and all the way back to Adam. Where Matthew begins with Abraham and brings it down to Joseph and then to Jesus. So they are different, but there's some original language that poetically aligns with Genesis chapter 5, which talks about how it, things had gone from Adam all the way to Noah. And, and you say, well, why is all of that important? It's important because Matthew understood something that Luke understood that John in his gospel also tried to communicate, and that is, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, Messiah, was God's plan before the world was even created. God is faithful to His covenant promises. God is faithful to His prophecies. And He's faithful to all generations, proving Himself real and alive and active and powerful, working all things together. It's amazing how the prophecies of the Old Testament some 456 prophecies pointing to the coming of Messiah all come true in Christ. That first gospel, Genesis 3.15, remember we saw it up here in the video just a moment ago, why the world needs the hope of Messiah? Because we have all sinned and come short of God's glory after Adam and Eve had sinned and been kicked out of the garden and were under the curse of sin. This promise was made concerning the Messiah, he said that the seed of a woman, now that doesn't make sense unless you believe in the virgin birth, but he said the seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. Who was the serpent, by the way? Yeah, Satan himself, the devil himself. 
And so there was a prophecy that began with Adam and Eve. People will ask me sometimes, Pastor, I don't understand. Before Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the grave, how were people saved? I understand we're saved by grace through faith looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. But how were people saved back in the old covenant days? The same way. By grace through faith in Christ. Looking forward to the promises. Abraham the Bible says, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was saved by grace through faith, looking forward. Adam and Eve, cursed, kicked out of the garden, were saved by grace through faith in what they were promised in the fact that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. That was the gospel they had. I don't know how much they understood that, but that was the gospel they were given. And these as you work your way through the Old Testament, some 456 prophecies, meaning fulfilled in the names of this genealogy again and again. The fact that they come true, in, come true in Christ is amazing. I want to share some interesting insight from John Ankerberg. He tells the story of David Greenglass, a World War II traitor. He gave atomic secrets to the Russians and then fled to Mexico after the war. His conspirators arranged, Ankerberg tells the story, to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Russian ambassador in Mexico City. Proper identification for both parties became vital. Greenglass was to identify himself with six prearranged signs. These instructions had been given to both the secretary and Greenglass so there would be no possibility of making a mistake. Here were the signs. Number one, once in Mexico City, Greenglass was to write a note to the secretary signing his name as I. Jackson. Number two, after three days, he was to go to the Plaza de... I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Cologne in Mexico City. Number three, stand before the statue of Columbus. Number four, with his middle finger raised in a guidebook. In addition, number five, he was approached, if he was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. And then number six, can you get more specific than this? Number six, the secretary was to then give him a passport. These six prearranged signs, by the way, worked. Ankerberg goes on to say, why did they work? With six identifying characteristics, it was impossible for the secretary not to identify Greenglass as the proper contact. He matched all six, and they said because there were six identifying characteristics, there was no way that the Russian secretary was going to get it wrong. Six. Ankerberg goes on to say this, How true then it must be that Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah if he had 456 identifying characteristics well in advance and fulfilled them all. In fact, what does the science of probability make of this? Mathematicians say the probability of all 456 prophecies being fulfilled in one person, the way they were fulfilled, when they were fulfilled, all the facts known about that time, 
the, the, est, the estimate is this. It would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I believe that is 157 zeros. And I wouldn't even want to guess at what you would call that number. In other words, it is scientifically impossible that all of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one person unless that one person supernaturally was who he claimed to be. God is faithful to all generations, revealing Himself in Jesus, Messiah, so we can live with confidence and hope. And with confidence and hope, we can say a couple of things. With Mary in Luke chapter 1, when she finds out that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, we can also say, My soul magnifies the Lord, for He who is mighty has done great things. And we can also say, with John in Revelation, here's the cool thing about all this. If all that was prophesied concerning the first coming of Christ came true in Christ, what about all that was prophesied concerning the second coming of Christ, we can say with confidence like John in Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. If He came the first time, and it was scientifically, theoretically impossible for all the prophecies to be fulfilled in one person, unless it was supernaturally He was who He claimed to be, then it's obvious that He's coming again. We can be ready for Him. God's faithfulness to all generations. Secondly, I want us to see the grace of God to all generations. The grace of God to all generations. Our perfect God not only sent His Son to redeem an imperfect world, here's the cool thing, He used imperfect instrumentation to do it. He used imperfect people to accomplish His perfect plan. And we see their names all throughout this genealogy that through imperfect people He's bringing Messiah into the world. Remember the old saying, you can draw a straight line with a crooked stick? Well, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And if God can use these folks in this genealogy, then God can use us. Let's just point out a few. Let's think of the ones that He kind of named as the headliners here. Abraham. Abraham Believe God, it was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith. And we talk about the faith of Abraham. Wasn't he an awesome man of faith? But did Abraham ever have doubts? Better believe it. Abraham doubted God at times. Abraham lied about his wife and got her to lie about her identity. Abraham gave in to his wife and took Hagar as a mistress to commit adultery with, because Abraham thought, it looks like God needs my help with this promised child. He had a hard time believing that his wife was going to have a baby in her old age. So Abraham and Sarah decided they're going to help God out a little bit, which led to adultery, which led to an illegitimate child, which led to severe consequences that Israel even deals with to this day. But God was gracious. God still gave Sarah a child, did He not? Isaac, the promised child through Isaac's lineage, eventually comes Jesus, Messiah. Abraham's testimony is part of Hebrews' Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, reminding us that he did believe God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. God 
used Abraham just to show he's a gracious God and can use imperfect people to implement a perfect plan. The other name in the headline here, David. David was an unlikely hero that came out of nowhere. He's the youngest of his brothers on the backside of the desert doing his chores, perhaps never thinking he would be used, and certainly by appearance, no one thought he would be used to do great things. But we hear these great things from the prophet. God looks on the inside. Though man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And God saw something in David. God's grace was on David's life. Did David always get it, get it right? Yeah, his, his great faith eventually became pride. David struggled with an ego. Any ladies here married to a man who struggles with an ego? You don't have to raise your hands. You're married, you're married you're probably married a man who struggles with an ego. All men do, and David did. He struggled with this thing called the male ego, and he became too good to be one of the kings off at war when everybody else was off at war. He laid his eyes on Bathsheba, and what followed was scandalous. Adultery, pregnancy, murder, for David himself, unbelievable Seasons of depression. More consequences. Israel's greatest king was the father of Israel's, as far as we see in Scripture, Israel's most dysfunctional family. Why is that important to know about the grace of God to all generations? Because there may be somebody sitting here this morning saying, God can't use me. You don't know how messed up I am. God can't use me. You don't know how messed up my family is. Dysfunction. Listen, there, there are some churches where people don't feel welcome because they walk in and all the families act like they have it all together. Can we just be real at Trinity this morning? We don't have it all together. The pastor's family doesn't have it all together. And if I could be a fly on your wall, I would discover your wall doesn't have it all together. But I'll tell you what the pastor's family rejoices in, that God's grace uses us anyway. And I pray that that's what your family rejoices in. And God forbid that anybody would ever come into our fellowship and say, you know what, <laughs> well, those families really have it all together. Listen, our God is the one who holds it all together. Our God has it all together. And we can have love and we can have joy and peace in our relationships because of who our God is, not because of who we are. God used David in spite of all this dysfunction in his family that led to more murder, more treachery, rape, and incest within his own family. And yet all the Jews are tracing their family lineage to see if they're part of this royal family, King David's family. Family of dysfunction. Family of brokenness but a king who experienced God's grace early and late in life. That's the messianic hope. So, by the way, in Hebrews Hall of Faith, chapter 11, verse 32, David's name is also mentioned. A hero of the faith. Didn't have it all together. But God is a gracious God. Another observation this morning, and I want to kind of wrap it up with this one. Because it's quite unusual in a genealogy when you talk about kind of a, a patriarchal system. It's unusual to mention the women. 
But other than Mary, there are four other women mentioned in this passage. And let's think, of, think for a moment about who they are and what they teach us. In verse 3, we see the name Tamar. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a Canaanite woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to seduce Judah. And God takes what the devil meant for bad, and he uses it for good, and she becomes royalty and part of the royal lineage. Verse 5, you know this one, Rahab. There was no pretending about Rahab, was there? She wasn't pretending to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. That had been her life. You talk about a redeeming God. The spies come in, and this Gentile prostitute hides the spies in Joshua chapter 2 in order to save her family when the walls of Jericho come down. Remember the spies told her, you hang that scarlet cord where we can see it and we will make sure we rescue your family. And that scarlet cord becomes a representative of the scarlet thread of redemption from Genesis to Revelation that we find throughout our Bible. Rahab's story becomes your story, becomes my story that God can take someone who would seem like the most vile offender and the farthest from him and use that person for his glory because God is a gracious God and he likes to prove that he can. He likes to prove himself gracious again and again and again. Also in verse 5 we see Ruth, a Moabite woman. We love the story of Ruth. Her book is one of the most beautiful Stories in all of the Old Testament, all of the Bible, because this Moabite woman has married into a Jewish family that had come to her part of the world because of a famine. Now there's famine in that region. They've got, they've got to go back there. They've got to go back home. The problem is now her husband is dead. And she has no royal claim. She has no family lineage. No reason to go back to Bethlehem except for her mother-in-law. And even though her sister-in-law said, you know what, I, I think I'll, I'll just stay here like Naomi said. Ruth said, look, Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you live, that's where I'm going to live. Naomi, your God is my God. And we find this beautiful passage that's often just read at weddings about a daughter-in-law saying, you know what, I'm going to stay with my mother-in-law. I'm going to travel with her. I'm going to worship her God. And Ruth comes back to Bethlehem. She moves from from Moab's miseries to Bethlehem's blessings because Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer, becomes her husband. And Ruth, who could have just been this peasant proselyte, marries into royalty, not only becoming royalty because she married Boaz, but now she is listed in the genealogy, in the lineage, one through whom God would usher Messiah into the world, this great woman named Ruth. God was gracious to take her from Moab's miseries, place her in Bethlehem's blessing, just to prove again that he can. And finally, in verse 6, perhaps the most unlikely of the bunch, Bathsheba. Remember I mentioned David's dysfunction? Again, God took what the devil meant for bad, and he used Bathsheba, the other party in David's adultery, as proof that God redeems what Satan meant for bad. Say, Pastor, what's your point in all that? Here's my point. Some of you feel dirty. 
Some of you feel unusable. Some of you feel unredeemable. Some of you feel dysfunctional. Some of you feel embarrassed. Some of you feel broken. And if you are at that point in your life, good. Praise the Lord because you're a candidate for a miracle of God to work in you and to work through you. Because God obviously, according to this genealogy, takes delight in bringing Messiah into this world through broken, dirty, crooked, abused people who He says, you know what? I'm going to take you from where you are and turn you into royalty. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I want us to wrap up with this passage. Romans chapter 8. It's also on the overhead, so I want you to read it in case you're not reading from the New King James Version. By the way, I like several versions. I typically preach from New King James or ESV, but I want us to read this one together on the overhead. Verses 15 through 17, Romans chapter 8. This is where you come into the story. This is where you find yourself in the genealogy of Christ. Read it aloud with me. I want to hear your voices. Read with me, starting with verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. See, folks, we've been engrafted into the vine. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And because we are royalty, we're part of this lineage, God will use us to bring Jesus into this world. We looked at 1 Peter 2.9 when we began this study of Matthew's Gospel. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, God's own special people, that through you He may proclaim the praises of the One who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. God wants to use you and me to bring Messiah into the... Oh, Messiah's already come. God wants to use you and me as witnesses to bring Messiah into a world that doesn't know Him. And if we feel like we're not worthy, guess what? (laughs) We're in good company. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is true from cover to cover and always profitable. And Father, we thank You that if it's all profitable, then that means the genealogy of Jesus can teach us so many wonderful things. Lord, I'm grateful that You can use a crooked stick like me to draw a straight line. Lord, I'm thankful that You can use my family. Every family represented here, I'm thankful that You can use this church to bring the Gospel into the world. And through Trinity Baptist Church, You can shake the world with the message of Jesus Messiah. And Lord, we're thankful that we've seen You doing that, and we pray that You would continue to do that because You are faithful and because You are gracious. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.